I'm Jeff Cohen. Have you ever dreamed of publishing a book? Well, our next guest, Bracha Getz, has accomplished that 42 times and counting. But she's more than a prolific writer. She also navigated a truly inspiring journey to Jewish observance, and she's here today to share her story. So let's get started. Bracha, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. Happy to be here. I love your enthusiasm already, and I have to believe our listeners who have dreamed of writing even one book are going to be inspired to find out someone can do it as many times as you. Yeah, hope so. <laughs> so before we go into your writing career, we like to get to know the person behind the talent that they have. So let's start a little bit with the beginning of your story. Can you share a little bit about where you were born and raised and where your story begins? I was born and raised in Rigo Park, Queens, New York. I went to Forest Hills High School where Simon and Garfunkel went before me. And I worked really hard. I studied a lot and I ended up going to Harvard University. Then I went on to medical school. And the summer between my first and second year of medical school, I had a six week break and I volunteered in Hadassah Hospital in Israel. And that summer, six weeks turned into 10 years. I stayed in Israel. I became observant that summer. First, I took a year's leave of absence from medical school, but I did not end up returning. So there's a lot to unpack here because you just took us from childhood all the way into becoming religious. And I want to go into some of the details of of how that all happened because I'm sure it wasn't a quick story. So let's just start with the point when you're in the younger years. Where's your family holding religiously as you're growing up? We belonged to a conservative synagogue, and I got a bas mitzvah. It's so funny. When I had my bas mitzvah, I, I remember the, how it began. I learned the trap of doing it, and when I said it years later, I said, oh, this is the first word, and I realized those were three different words. I, I didn't know exactly what <laughs> I was saying, you know. But um, we celebrated Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Hanukkah. Passover. My father did not actually believe in God. My father called himself an agnostic, and he was very into socialism. And I would ask him, like, do you believe in God? No, I I don't know. I said, like, why do you want to keep living? What's your purpose for life? He would say, it's like I'm watching a TV show. I just want to know what's going to happen next. (laughs) Yeah, but that, I don't know, it bothered me. I don't know why. I wanted to know what the purpose of all this was. Nobody else seemed to care. I know my sister used to say, I always cared what the purpose of life was. Who cares? You know, it's like, I don't know. I I felt like a little bit strange, but it was always important to me. So it was important to you, but it seems like you weren't thinking necessarily religion is the answer or where you might find that importance because religion is not being stressed as you're growing up. And you talked about, you know, you talked about going to Harvard and college at the time. There's a lot of exploration. People are finding themselves. So take us through as you're growing up and heading to the Harvard years. Like, how does this desire to find out, like, why we're here? How does that connect to religion? Or maybe it doesn't during those years. I was searching just about everywhere I could. And that's why I got into Harvard, because I was searching for wisdom. I figured, okay, then maybe this place will have the most wisdom. I'll finally find it. That's why I started studying and doing well. Actually, I got very involved with Christian science. A boyfriend became a Christian scientist. He was, I mean, he was Jewish, but, you know, his family was doing that. And I would go 
with him to the church every Sunday, and I learned a lot. I learned about the infinite possibilities that are available through connecting to God. That's something I really took with me from that. That's when I started doing well in school, actually, after I got involved with Christian science and Buddhism. That also seemed very spiritual to me. I didn't really see Judaism as spiritual. I saw it as a cultural thing that I could ditch. And whatever my parents did do seemed very meaningless to me. Like, why should I just do these cultural things for no reason? They put the bread aside on Passover, and I would go out and eat it elsewhere. Like, it didn't make any sense to me. Why are they doing these things? And my mother would light candles on Friday night, but that was the end of Shabbos, just the candle lighting. I mean, I just couldn't understand all these contradictions. We would eat non-kosher food in a room with the Venetian blinds closed, but we wouldn't eat it in the kitchen. All these things bothered me, and I was rebellious against them and searching into other religions. I know when I got to Harvard, my boyfriend there was Catholic, and he was actually a Jesuit, which is also interesting, very into education. And he wanted to learn more about Judaism, so I started studying more about Judaism. In fact, he wanted me to go to Hillel with him on Shabbos. I wasn't interested, but I did it a couple of times. And then I got out these books about Hasidism, and that, whoa, I saw there was spirituality in Judaism. I started reading these Hasidic tales. I remember I was hanging out with him at at his beach house, at his parents' house, and I was reading these Hasidic tales the whole time and loving it. But I, I didn't know people like that. I didn't know it still existed, but I loved, I saw all these spiritual things in Judaism at that time. Another thing about Harvard is that I was, you know, I kind of thought, this is it. I've reached the top. So like when I was invited to this like exclusive garden party, where I don't think there were any other Jewish people there. Um, it, it, it was like I saw that like the children of the most famous people, the Kennedys, Rockefellers, Moynihan's, like like they, they were searching for something more too. Like that wasn't it. It wasn't all there was. And I love that on this beautiful garden party day in May, the sky suddenly filled up with storm clouds and there was a huge thunderstorm and that was the end of the whole party and I felt power can't stop the rain from coming down. There's something more, but I don't yet know what it is. So I actually felt more lost than ever when what I thought was making it was not really making it. Like fame and fortune, power, this is not it. I developed eating disorder behavior in my teenage years, which got worse at Harvard and really got the worst at medical school. By that time, I actually met with a therapist at the medical school to finally divulge to someone all the bizarre behaviors I was doing because it was like taking up all my energy by that point. And he said to me, you know, I know you think you're very messed up, But really, it sounds like you're just going to need to find yourself spiritually. This Japanese psychiatrist said this to me. It was really amazing because I must have been expressing this big spiritual need. He said, you know, when you go to Israel this summer, I think you're going to find what you're looking for. In medical school, I was dating a Southern Baptist. And by then, my parents were like, we want you to date Jewish people. And I wasn't, you know, rebellious again. So... 
my mother was pushing me to go to Israel for the summer. And she said, you know, do whatever you want, but just don't contact this one religious fanatic that I knew from my childhood, this guy that became religious. So, of course, I sent him an aerogram. I'm studying to be a psychiatrist, but I don't know why life is worth living. And he said, yeah, don't worry about your patients. I'll take you to some schools where you could learn about the purpose of life. So just to get into a little bit more detail on this, you're finishing up Harvard, you're you're pre-med there, that you're going to go on to medical school. You said you were going to be a psychiatrist. It's your mother who says, somewhere in here, I think you should go to Israel. Like, What's her motivation at the time for you going there? Because I think you just said you're dating a non-Jew. Is she trying to reconnect you to Judaism? Like, What's the motivation for that trip? Meet somebody Jewish. You know, why are you only dating non-Jews? And it was getting more and more extreme because like the Southern Baptist I was dating, like his mother did not want any Jews in the house. It was like, (laughs) why was I doing this? You know? So yeah, she wanted me to meet someone Jewish. She actually said that. But you had a different motivation than your mom. You're coming from the angle of, I want to explore. I'm learning about myself. It's not so much about meeting a Jewish guy. So you have different motivations, but they're leading to the same trip anyway. Yes, exactly. All right. So you go to Israel and and what happens there? I was volunteering in the oncology ward at Hadassah in Karim, and this old friend came and met me in the cafeteria. He took me to two schools, Nevei Yerushalayim and Or Sameach. Or Sameach had a small women's division at that time, and they were so excited when I came. There were like 10 women, and they were just starting out. I came, I went to both schools. I loved the classes, but they really were extremely welcoming to me at Orsameach. So within a week, I moved out of the dorms at Hadassah and into Orsameach. Because like the first class I went to, I felt like this is what I have been looking for. The people, the teachers, everybody was idealistic like I had been before I became more cynical and was like losing my hope about life. And there was such a joy, such a search for the truth. I felt like I connected with everybody, what they were teaching, the people. It was amazing. Yes, I felt tremendous joy there. The people that were there, were they religious or they were on their own journeys? Like I would think you're connecting with them because you like that they're seekers like you are, but were they already further along their path? And like, was it starting to introduce this idea of becoming an Orthodox Jew? Like when is that introduced into the conversation? Some were just coming in every day. Some had been there a week or a few weeks, you know, but and obviously some like the the Madrachot were further along, but it was all people on the path of learning more. And I remember the first time I slept over one night, I said to one of the girls, teach me every single thing to do from the minute I wake up. By the time we hit breakfast, I said, that's enough. I don't want to hear any more. <laughs> this, is, this is more than enough already. <laughs> so, and, and the first Shabbos, I escaped. I got away. It was too much. And by the second Shabbos, I was put in B'nai Brak by a family who um, had been to graduate school at Harvard. I connected with them tremendously. It was like unbelievable. And obviously I wasn't running away from B'nai Brak either. So it was like perfect. And, you know, little by little, I just started loving it and incorporating more and more into my life. 
You're raising an important point because they say when someone's becoming religious, you don't take it all on on the same day. And it sounds like you, you made a ill-fated attempt at doing the whole thing in 24 hours and saw that you kind of ricochet back to feeling like it's too much. But then you, you take another crack at it, I guess, on a, a slower path. And so it starts to feel more comfortable to you. Yeah. And not that slow. After 10 minutes, that was enough, you know, but I really immersed myself in so many ways, you know, because I came in June. By September, I wanted to start dating and meeting people on this path already, you know. And I remember the, like the house mother said, isn't this a little bit early for you to start wanting to date? I said, well, I came from a kosher kitchen. My mother had a kosher kitchen. Oh, okay. Like they thought like I was kind of a little bit, had some background, you know. When I, <laughs> so um, I convinced them. I went out with like 10 different guys and nobody wanted to go out with me again. And they were like, you just like came off the boat. Like you don't know anything, you know. Until I met my husband. <laughs> He, he really didn't care where I was coming from. He saw where I was headed. That's what I would say, you know. He, he has that vision to understand. Yeah. How did you meet him and where was he in his journey at the time that your paths crossed? He had been religious for three years. He had also graduated college. And the most amazing thing is that he was born three blocks away from me in Queens. His parents had moved away before I was born, but they had belonged to the same conservative synagogue. Like our parents did almost exactly the same things. Our cultural backgrounds were extremely similar, so we, we had a lot in common. I say we met in a sukkah, and I say that the sukkah turned into a chuppah pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering what that call was back to your mom, where you're saying, the good news is I did meet a Jewish guy just like you wanted, but you also warned me against fanatics and people that were too religious. So there's a little bit more to the story. What was that conversation like? They put on an engagement party at Orsamea. Somebody dressed up to pretend they were my mother and someone pretended to be me. And the person pretending to be my mother said, we wanted you to marry someone Jewish, but this is ridiculous. That's exactly what it was. They were flipped out. They thought I joined the cult. They were not at all happy. They came for the wedding, but they really wanted to kidnap me and take me to Australia. They did not want this to happen. Everything seemed much too quick. They didn't really know him. It was terrifying for them. And I did not have compassion for them. I was so strong about doing what I had to do in order to be able to live this life that I felt was exactly what I needed that I didn't have compassion for what they must be going through at all. I mean, I read my old letters, which are in my memoir, and I see that there was some compassion and understanding, but really I didn't get how they were suffering because this was so dramatic and quick that I just drop out of medical school, give up all this. And, but for me, it was like giving up nothing and I was gaining everything. For me, it was an easy decision and it didn't look that way on the outside. That's what I wanted to ask you because I'm thinking about at the time you go on the trip, you're not thinking you're going to be in Israel for a long time. You're thinking it's just a summer thing and then you'll come back and finish your degree. So I understand that you get excited about religion. You want to be orthodox. It doesn't automatically mean you have to abandon your career plan. So how did that happen as a result of becoming more religious? I'm the kind of person, 
I devote myself to something in a very concentrated way. It's not for everybody. For sure, a person could be a physician and be from and be orthodox. Absolutely. But it wasn't for me. There was so much going on, all the gears changing in my head. I wanted to devote my being to raising my family in the formative years. And that's what I did. Yeah. So the short trip to Israel extends into what? Like, what's the plan now? You, you get married in Israel and you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to stay here forever? Like, what, what's the plan post-wedding? Yeah, first we lived in Geula, a part of Jerusalem, and then Asha Torah started a yeshuv, a settlement in Gush Etzion, in the hills of Judea. So we were the first 10 families that went out there and started this settlement. It was extremely exciting. We loved being pioneers. It was the most awesome years of my life, like unbelievable. So we started this settlement and I raised my young children there. We had five children while we lived there. We lived there all together. We lived there about 10 years. And then we visited my parents in America for two weeks. And we ended up coming back without plans again. You see the pattern repeating itself. We did not plan to come back, but my parents weren't well. And we decided, I think we should try staying here now. It was also a dangerous time with the Intifada where we were living. It was, it was kind of dangerous. My husband was working as the manager of the settlement. The car rides out, we were getting hit with Molotov cocktails and rocks and our car was left at the airport. The challahs were in the freezer, and we ended up staying in America. Now we've been here over 30 years, and we are actually finally going back again to live in Israel. Me and my husband, my children are all grown and married with their own families, and we are returning. So what were you each doing career-wise when you were in Israel? I, I'm thinking that writing is going to come into the picture, I guess, while you're in Israel. What's your husband doing? Because you then say you come back to America. So how easy or hard was it to take whatever you were doing career-wise and still make money once you moved back? My husband's degree was in urban planning, but he was working as an administrator at Asha Torah. The traveling became too hard. He became the manager of the yeshuv, of the settlement. I was not doing that much. I mean, yeah, I started writing children's books. I don't even think I began editing at that point until we came to America. So actually, finances were very difficult. That was actually part of our reason for coming back, because my husband couldn't get a job in his actual profession, which he was able to get once we came back to America. And how does your life go into children's books? As I said, 42 books, so there had to be a point when there were zero books. So where did the thought come that this is the area I'm supposed to write in? Where was the inspiration coming from? And how did that start to take off? We lived in caravans there, and my children were playing nicely in the playground. So I had a notebook of ideas if I ever had time to write them up. So I put the loose leaf paper in an envelope mailed it to America, and six weeks later, I heard back that the book was accepted. So I was like, whoa, I can write a children's book. This is so exciting. That was how I knew that I could start to do that. And it was thrilling, too, because I was a new Balchuva, that I could create things that the Orthodox world wanted to read and that was helpful was so exciting for me. I can also see from researching your books that you don't shy away from some of the heavier topics, which can be difficult to get into with kids depending on the age. So how did you realize you could write on some of these topics? And maybe you can give an example or two of a topic that you approach and how you do it in a delicate way. I think that has to do a lot with being a Baljuva. 
We don't just accept the status quo. We've changed our lives tremendously. If I see something that isn't right, I want to work to change it, whether it's in the Orthodox community or not. So I was working for about 20 years. I worked as the director of a Big Brother, Big Sister program. I really became an expert on prevention education, screening for sexual abuse. We we had to really screen that only the right people would want to become mentors, big brothers and big sisters. So I read a, a lot of literature and I saw more and more that this was missing from the orthodox community. There was not enough prevention education. So I began to write the books on this subject. Now, Debbie Fox had already been working in California. She was doing workbooks, but there was no picture book that parents could read with their children at home. So every single publisher rejected my manuscript. They were not ready for it. Also, the orthodox magazines and newspapers would not publish my articles on the subject except for the Jewish press, and I would search out rabbis to help me. I found Rabbi Horowitz, Rabbi Yaakov Horowitz, who pushed it through and got Art Scroll to accept my manuscript. So that was really exciting. So it was four years after I wrote my first manuscript on that subject, it was finally being published. And also, I wrote it so that the prevention education for children about sexual abuse was just one subject of many other normative safety measures. It was just kind of tucked in there. Four years later, a manuscript I wrote just focused on that subject could be published. So, And also, even my name is not on Let's Stay Safe because... At that time, they were so afraid I would get backlash. They wouldn't allow my name even to be on the book. This is how far we've come. You can't, we can't even picture that, not even a decade ago, how different things were. But the book has really changed things. It's been groundbreaking. Through Rabbi Horowitz's help, it's in over 130,000 homes. And with the, let's talk about personal privacy, really hundreds of thousands of homes now have these books, and it saved many lives, thank God. And so I said 42 books, but they weren't all children's books, right? There's 41 were children's books, and you did one adult book, so can you share the title of that one and what that one is about? Yes, it used to be called Searching for God in the Garbage, because that's how I was searching. Now it's got a new title because we were able to get the publishing rights back. It's called Nourish the Soul. This is my memoir. And as you know, I write short books. I'm very concise. But this book, I didn't really write the whole book. I compiled it. It's actual diary entries, journal entries, letters. And then I filled in the missing pieces of my story from age 12 to 32, developing the food addictions, healing from them, and how this Torah wisdom actually nourished my hungry soul. How was I able to heal through becoming orthodox? Okay, so when someone has a lot of kids, you're supposed to never say to them, who's your favorite kid? But I wonder if the same holds for an author. Can I ask you which is your favorite book of the 42 you've done? Well, I am going to pick the abuse books because they've saved lives. It means so much to me. But one of my newest books is Don't Read This Book. This book took me 30 years to write. I wrote it 30 years ago. I had the title. I had most of it written, but it wasn't ready. I kept working on it. 
And finally, last year, I got the last piece of wisdom that I needed to complete the book. It has so much of what I've learned through the years in it, and it helps children and adults to understand how the Yetzirah, how that voice inside our heads, the impulsive voice that is trying to get us to do the wrong thing, how to overcome it, how to be aware of its tricks, and to use its tricks to overpower it and have a joyful life. So the surprise ending at the end of the book is what I was working for for all those years. And it's changed my life too, writing this book. I realize one of the things we haven't yet told our listeners is the best way to find your book. So I want to make sure I give you a chance to uh, share your website and where the best way is to come across some of your fine work. The books are all on Amazon. They're in Jewish bookstores. Also public libraries, even you can get them from your public library. And they're on my website, which is an amazing website. My children are doing it. With my 40th book, they started publishing my books. They said, no more giving my books to the publishers. We are becoming your publisher, and that's what they're doing. So my youngest children are are doing that now. So they've created an amazing website. And what's the address? www.getsbookshop.com. Beautiful. And just for our listeners who wouldn't wouldn't necessarily know the spelling, it's G-O-E-T-Z, correct? Yes, thank you. Okay, so let's go back to your story and just connected to religion, I have a couple of follow-up questions I wanted to ask you. The last time we spoke about your mom was the reaction to her seeing this lifestyle that you had taken on. But now we have you coming back to the United States. Like, has your relationship with her changed at that point? Sometimes grandkids is like the great equalizer, but I'm wondering what happened for your personal situation. When they saw the Midos, the beautiful qualities of our children, that's it. Their hearts were completely open to this. And before my mother passed away, she asked if my father could live with us. Now, my father had Alzheimer's. He was 84 at the time. And we say that he became orthodox at 84 because he was completely keeping kosher, keeping Shabbos, Shomer Shabbos, doing everything with us for the last few years of his life. And every day he'd wake up and say, is it Shabbos today? Because he loved it so much, you know. He passed away on Shabbos in our home and we were all surrounding him. It was, I gotta say, really an unbelievably spiritual experience. And what he saw, I, I, I never described this before, but like just before he passed away, this reminds me of um, Steve Jobs said, just before, his, I remember his eyes opened, he described it, and he said, oh, wow. Well, my father couldn't speak at that point, but that's what happened. His eyes were closed. He was barely breathing, and then his eyes opened, and then it was just like that, what he saw, and then he, it was an unbelievable thing. We all saw it, you know, around him. I felt like, okay, he wasn't sure before, but now he knows, you know? It was pretty amazing, Yeah. Well, the way you're telling that story, you must have also been thinking back to some of the tougher conversations you'd had with your parents as you were becoming religious and and seeing your father come around to it, like towards the end of his life, must be remarkable. In a way, because he did have Alzheimer's, you know what I mean? But yes, 
I felt it with my mother too. She so appreciated our home and what it would be like for my father to be surrounded by all these children that loved him so much. He would sit on the sofa for three years almost, reading the same page out of a book. One of the biographies of a great rub on the same page, just he loved it because he loved books and he'd just be sitting. And my children would surround him and include it. It was just, it was really very touching and beautiful. And there's another side to that you touched on briefly, but I want to give you a chance to explore it a little bit more. You mentioned Big Brother, Big Sister, so that's an organization you've been involved in. So what kind of role have you played over the years with them? Well, I was the coordinator of the program here. It was really interesting. Before that, I was working as the director of a senior residence, the activity director. And then I saw an ad in the Jewish paper. They want someone who will direct this program, an orthodox person who will direct the program that used to be only for children of single parent homes, but now was opening up because there were teens going off the derech not only from single parent homes and they wanted someone to direct the program. Now me, I had strived so hard to become orthodox. I wanted to do this. Yes, I want to help with the teens going off the derech to come back. So that's what I did. I left that job working with the seniors, which I did love, but I felt this was calling to me. So like for about 20 years, I did this job until I retired and I loved it. It was providing mentors for children and teens that wanted and needed to have a a mentor in their life, a role model. It's beautiful because I can see you're helping people not just through your writing, but you're also doing it through your volunteering. So it's a nice double way that you're helping people. I love it. And now I spend my time really sharing with Jewish people and non-Jewish people Rabbi Noah Weinberg's teachings about the pleasure ladder, how to be happy, how to be grateful, because it's universal teachings. I started before the pandemic, but it really took off in those years because I consume all over the world doing this. You know, I've given classes in just sitting here to China and China and Africa and Japan and Germany and to all different kinds of people. And I'm teaching them these universal truths that Rev. Noah Weinberg really taught us in the most revolutionary way, opening the Torah's wisdom so that we all can gain from it. If I was a young person listening to you and you have described how your life is pretty set up when you're young, you worked really hard in school, you get into Harvard, you have this plan to become a psychiatrist, like it's all pretty clear and concrete, a lot more so than a lot of people would, would know at that age. And then you go in a completely different direction. Like, what what would you say to someone who's kind of like coming up through those high school years who thinks they kind of have it figured out and they, they have this roadmap about how things can change over time as you learn more about yourself? You know what's funny? I don't see it as such a different direction. It sounds that way to other people. But in both cases, I just wanted to help people heal. That's what I'm doing. I love helping other people, and I found different forms to do it in, but it's really coming from the same essence of who I am. In a sense, it's less of a focus on the medical, but not, because some of my books are about public health. Even as an undergraduate at Harvard, I was taking courses at Harvard Medical School and the Graduate School of Public Health. So I have books about let's swim safely, books about the prevention of abuse, books about disabilities, and now books about healthy eating, exercise. What all my books have in common is they help souls to shine. 
that's what I love to do. And as a psychiatrist, that's what I hoped I would be doing. And so that's what I've been doing. And I just have to tell you, as we go to the lightning round, the energy that you brought to the interview is like infectious. I have a feeling you're going to be an expert at the lightning round. So you ready to go? <laughs> ready. Yeah. All right. Question one. What would be your single best piece of advice for someone who's always wanted to publish that first book? So I tell people, it takes 20 years and 20 minutes to write a book. You walk around with that idea in your head for 20 years. Just spend 20 minutes writing the first draft, especially of a picture book. It's that quick. You can get it down in 20 minutes. That's what I do. And then you work on editing and fixing it up. But get it on the paper. All right. Second question. You hear so much about writers experiencing writer's block, but clearly 42 times you've overcome that. So what's your advice for someone who feels stuck on a manuscript? Yeah, well, I have a very playful attitude and it's so important. I don't take it really seriously. I take the topic seriously, like this has to be out in the world. This information has to be out there. But how I do it, it's a playful sense. If I don't feel like writing right now, I won't. But when I do feel like writing, Kurt Vonnegut described it. Oh, writing's easy. You just cut yourself and the blood comes pouring out. (laughs) That's what it feels like. It's coming from such a deep place that it just pours right out. I keep a pad by my bed at night. In the morning, that's when Hashem sends it. I wake up, oh my gosh, it comes pouring down like rain. I just got to collect the drops on the piece of paper and write it all down, you know? So just be open. The happier you are, the more playful, the more you're a channel for the infinite creativity to flow through you. All right, last question. You are someone who's lived an observant life in Israel and the United States. So what do you see as the similarities or differences of doing it in both places? Mm, I feel that there's more simplicity in Israel. We're not so distracted by all the gashmias, the materialism. We know what to focus on more clearly. We have now a little yichida. We've built an apartment there. We are loving it. It's simple. It's sweet. And now we've got to unclutter this big old house, you know, filled with stuff. There is not even going to be room for stuff. Simple living. You feel the spirituality so much more intensely. I feel fully alive there. So if you see me with a lot of animation here, you can imagine what I'm like there. No, really. <laughs> and my best work comes out there, too. It's definitely channels more spirituality. Yes. Bracha, I love your energy, I love your enthusiasm, and I love how willing you were to be so forthright with your story. So let me just say thank you so much for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit taklismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.